always think it's exciting watching all the kids that leave. Shows you how much, uh, it tells me at least that the future is bright, doesn't it? As a dad, I, we get to celebrate today our second oldest daughter, Addison, birthday. You know, birthdays, when it's our own birthdays, oftentimes um, we reflect on life, you know? You, you start thinking, man, for me, I, I'm about to hit the mountain experience in a few short months. And so I'm clinging white-knuckled to my 30s right now. But, you know, when you hit your own birthdays and those little milestones, but, but you know what ends up happening also, at least for me, as you see your children hit those birthdays, um, you, you often have those times of reflections. And uh, Addison turns nine today. And so, you know, my little girl, this is her last, like, single-digit birthday. And, you know, Courtney and I are kind of the people that if we had our druthers, we, we would keep our kids. We'd hit pause right now. We would keep our kids. Actually, we might rewind a little bit. <laughs> There's a little bit of this stuff. I don't know. Maybe I don't know where we would rewind to exactly, but, but we enjoy kids and we enjoy young kids. And I've been very forthright. Although I have a heart for teenagers, I don't have a heart for having teenagers. Okay? I, I want to minister to your teens, not mine. Okay? So I'm not ready to go into that sphere of life yet. But unfortunately, you can't stop the clock, right? And so with that, let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off last week. We, we looked at the first two-thirds of the chapter, and initially I'd, I'd planned to, to finish this chapter, go from verse 23 to the end of the chapter, but this morning uh, I'm just kind of perfectly reconsidered that. We're going we're gonna to split this, that last section up into two weeks, one this week, and then we'll finish the chapter next week. Um, so, so what we have, just as a, as a reference point to remind us for those who who missed a week or two along this journey. And really one of the reasons why I love going through this expository style, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is it allows us to really see the context of what's going on. And, and when we, we consider, if we dissect the story, if we just keep the stories all separate, it, you lose some of this flow and, and you lose really the, the, the reference point, what's going on. And, and for us today, this, this, um, what we're going to see is the disciples and the the church come together and pray for boldness. Well, if we just read that in and of itself, it sounds good. It's a great, it's a great thing to be reminded of. But if we don't lead up and we don't consider what had happened prior, it loses a lot of that, that, that amazingness. And so the, the Acts begins, the first chapter, we begin with, with Jesus and his disciples, and they're gathered together, and Jesus is talking to his buddies. And he, he, he at the very beginning of the chapter, says, guys, I'm leaving, I'm going. I'm ascending to heaven. And this is right after, this is 40 days after Jesus had come back to life, after he was resurrected from the days, a dead. So this is like 40 days after Easter, okay? And, and Jesus goes to his disciples and he tells them, guys, I'm leaving, but I got this, this, this plan for your lives. You need to go back to Jerusalem, stay there. Something very special is going to happen. And he's referring there to the Holy Spirit coming. And he gives us the commandment to him. He says, listen, once this Holy Spirit comes, once, once you're filled, and leading up to this, the Holy Spirit, uh, this isn't like the, 
Bam, all of a sudden there's a brand new Holy Spirit we've never seen before. The Holy Spirit was around. He was part of the Trinity at the very beginning of creation, just like God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. But he didn't reside in someone after, at the point of salvation like he does today. Back in Old Testament times when we would read this, the Holy Spirit kind of came and went. And there'd be seasons, there'd be times when the Holy Spirit would indwell somebody, but he, he wasn't a permanent fixture. But here Jesus promises that this Holy Spirit, once you believe in Christ, once you believe in him, will come and indwell in you. And, and he was telling the disciples that this is going to be something much more powerful than even Jesus being with them. And so he says, listen, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's kind of the Great Commission. That's what birthed this, this Christmas project. And with those words, bam, Jesus goes. I mean, he, he begins to ascend into heaven. It's the, the ascension. And, and from that point on, Jesus, you know, we're waiting. Some 2,000 years later, we're waiting for his return again, his, his earthly return. And so these disciples go, and, and after they get this news, and they kind of they re, they retreat back to Jerusalem. They retreat to this upper room. More than likely, it was an upper room in the temple, and they're they're together. And, and the Bible tells us in, in Acts chapter one, it wasn't just the twelve disciples. There was a few others with them. So there's about 120 people in this room, and they're gathered up, and 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 they don't really know what to do other than they're supposed to wait, and they begin praying, and the Holy Spirit comes. And it, Acts chapter 1, it, it paints this, this kind of crazy picture where, where these tongues of fire were over the heads of those in the room. And then this, this sound of a wind occurred, like this rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then the disciples began speaking in these tongues. And we were very careful as we talked about that. that this, it wasn't just jibber-jabber. These guys weren't just making things up, but they were speaking in known languages. And this is what, as they're in this upper room in the temple and all this is occurring, this is taking place around the time of the Feast of Pentecost. All right. And so there's people from all over in Jerusalem. There's people from all over specifically in this temple area and in the courtyards. And they hear all this stuff going on. They hear the wind noise. They, 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 they hear all these praising, but, but they're drawn because all of a sudden they start hearing them talking in their language. And so they begin to go to see what's going on. And then Peter takes full advantage of this. And Peter begins to preach. And he preaches this message and he talks about how Jesus came and, 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 and he was crucified. That, that we, the people there, were the ones that killed him. But Christ brought him, or, Jesus, or God brought him back from the dead. And he talked about this idea of repentance and, and changing your ways. And in that day of Pentecost, 3,000 people accepted Jesus as their Savior. And so that church went from 120 to 3,120 in one service, in one sermon. And we see this continue to happen. And in the, in the, in the, a day or so later, or in a short period of time, Peter and John, they're, they're walking together. They were going to the temple. It was their, their com- the common custom of, of the Jews of that day. They would go three times a day, morning, midday, and evening. And they would pray an hour each time. And they would go to this temple. And they would pray. And as they're going, they go through this area called the Beautiful Gate. And there was this beggar, a lame man. The Bible tells us, as we read last week, very end, that this guy was at least 40 years old, at least. Had never walked a, a step in his life. He had been crippled from birth. 
He had these friends, they're good friends that would take him early in the morning. They would, they would get him to this beautiful gate and they would drop him off there and he would beg all day long. He would beg for money. He'd beg for goods, for, for substance. And along comes Peter and John and, and, and as they're walking, they hear this beggar and no doubt had passed this beggar on several occasions, but he grabs their attention. And he goes over, Peter, John, Peter and John go over to this man. And I love, as we mentioned this several times now, he went and he looked intently into the eyes of this lame man. And he instructed the lame man to do the same thing. And so you have this deep, like, human interaction, contact. And as this lame man's begging for money, Peter turns to him and, and says, silver and gold, I have none. So this stuff that you're looking for, the answers that you're hoping to get, I can't provide those things for you. And so I could almost sense that as, as this beggar was at, at some point probably excited to see these guys coming and, and as they get this deep contact, he's probably thinking, wow, this is going to be a big gift. And all of a sudden, as Peter says, I don't have any money, I'm sure there was just this great despair, this... Oh, and then as we talked about, more than likely this guy probably thinks he goes from, from this idea of getting something to where these guys are going to make fun of him. They're, they're, going, to, they're going to ridicule him. They're, they're going to give him a hard time. But Peter says, listen, I got something much better, much greater. And he turns to him and says, listen, rise up. Arise in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he reaches down with his right hand, grabs this man, lifts him up, and he walks. I mean, folks, Consider, think of that. I mean, to me, that blows my mind. This is a man at least 40 years old who had never walked in his life, who had been crippled. And he begins to walk in one instant, one step after another. And his legs were probably wobbly, but each step came with more confidence to the point where he started jumping up and down. I don't know if he's doing cartwheels. I don't know what he's doing, but he's going nuts and he's giving praise to God. He's, he's talking about how amazing God is. And then a crowd begins to come around them. They want to know what the ruckus is, what's going on. And, and so we get to this one other courtyard area of the temple called Solomon's Porch. And as this man's singing these praises to God and he's running around and, and people have known, have seen this beggar, and they see something has completely changed in his life. It draws their attention. And Peter takes full advantage once again and begins to talk about Jesus. Talk about repentance and lives changing. And at that point, along with this crowd came another group. The Bible calls these guys the, the high priests or the high priest. Talks about this temple guard, the, the police force of the temple, guys that were there to, to make sure everything was calm, cool, collective. Remember, this, this isn't just like a normal church here area like we have here, okay, where we stay pretty calm. Inside, you have the, the main building, but in these courtyards, it would be like a big fair. People would come, and they would have to do these sacrifices, and they would have to purchase these animals that they would sacrifice right there. So thousands upon thousands of dollars were, were exchanged every single day. And so this police force was there just to make sure everything was in order. And so this temple guard comes, the high priest is there, and this other group called the Sadducees. Now, as we go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we hear a little bit about the Sadducees, but most of the conversation is about this group called the Pharisees. 
Pharisees are these religious leaders, but they were, they were um, very strict to the letter of the law, to the Bible, the Old Testament. They were constantly setting these traps for Jesus. And the one thing that we can at least say about the Pharisees is this. They had this great deal of passion for God's word. It was just misguided. But the Sadducees were a completely different group. They were religious of sorts. What had happened over time is these guys had become very wealthy. Along with the wealth came this position. They became priests. And they were, they were manipulating the people. And they were, they were gaining a lot of this wealth through their position as the priest. And what they didn't want to happen is, is something needed to disturb what was going on. This time, Jerusalem is under the control of the Romans. And the Romans, um, history tells us that they were, they were tough if you got on their bad side. But they were somewhat open-handed. As long as you stayed in control, they wouldn't mess with you too much. They would let you do your thing as long as it didn't get crazy. The Sadducees were fine under their leadership because they could continue to, to, to gain this wealth and gain this power and authority. But all of a sudden, Peter, John, and this new lame man being healed. And this idea of Jesus once again. Now they thought they'd taken care of that problem some 40 plus days earlier. Now they, they thought when they put Jesus on a cross and he had died, they put him in a tomb, they thought it was over. They thought it was done. They thought they had handled that situation. But now these guys begin to, to preach. And people are hearing it, and they're, and they're accepting it. And so that first day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come and join this church. And this, this sermon that Peter preaches after the, this lame man is healed, 2,000 people come. And so that church goes from 120, and in, like, in, in two messages, goes from 120 to 5,120. That's big growth. But something's going on. The people are hearing it, and they're responding. And so this group, the high priest... Caiaphas and Annas, the, the temple guard and the Sadducees, they have Peter, John, and the lame man arrested. They want to silence this. They want to, they want to get rid of it. So they, they have them arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this like, kind of the supreme court of this religious group of those in the temple of the Jews. And they will stand before, and they're going to try and judge Peter and John on what had just happened. And this is leading up to where we're at today. Now, folks, remember this. And we can't say this enough. Peter and John are standing before the group, like the literal group that cast judgment to have Jesus Christ murdered and killed. This is the same group. This is, we're only a few, we're, we're like less than two months removed from this trial of Jesus being put on a cross. This is still new. The same group that, that, that was having Jesus arrested and killed, Peter and John are looking into the eyes of those same people. And they try to set the same traps that they set for Jesus. They're, they're trying to get these guys to take claim for this healing. And according to the Old Testament, the, the only way a healing or a miracle could be done is in the name of Jehovah. Now, they still think Jehovah's coming. The disciples knew that Jehovah was Jesus. And so as they set these traps, Peter, in this new way, a new 
temperament, a new personality of Peter, rather than take all the credit, Peter quickly says, listen, guys, none of this was done in my name. None of this was done in my power. It was all done through the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on and begins to talk to these, this Sanhedrin group and, and tells them the same thing, basically, that we saw in his previous sermon. And the, the, the people realize, the, the Sanhedrin realize that, that, that they really have nothing on these guys. I mean, the greatest proof is Peter and John turn to the lame man who's standing right next to them. And they're like, he's healed. Deal with it. And so the Sanhedrin huddles up and they realize they, they have nothing that they can stick. They, they have no right to be able to, to keep these men arrested. They have no way of, of having these, these guys killed. And so they still have this great concern, this great fear. How, how do we stop this? How do we stop these guys from going forward and doing and, and telling everybody? And so, so they, they go back to Peter and John. And they say, listen, guys, we're going to be nice to you today. We're going to let you go free. But no more talk of Jesus. No more preaching. No more sharing your faith. This stops now. You'll have your freedom just quit it with his Jesus talk. Peter, in this boldness, turns to them and says, listen, I can't help but talk about the things that I've seen and heard. So they throw these more, more threats at Peter and John, and they release them. And that's where we get to this morning. After this trial, after these threats by this group that was on a witch hunt for Jesus, now, the attention is no longer on Jesus. It's on this new group, this, this, this new church that's been formed and the leaders of this church, more specifically Peter and John. And that's where we pick up today. So Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 23 through 31. So Acts chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, And when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon your, their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray in the next few moments as we, 
look at this passage, as we look at the result of this arrest, the result of them standing before the Sanhedrin, a time that was difficult, a time that created certainly um, a great sense of intensity, angst. Lord, we ask that you help us to see this, this passage maybe in a new light or a refreshed light. Lord, I, I think, I believe in, in many ways we can understand a, a certain extent what the disciples were, were facing. We live in a day and age where declaring our faith isn't as easy as it once was. It's not necessarily applauded like it used to be. In fact, in many ways, it's frowned upon. So Lord, this morning, I pray that you use this passage to encourage us, to strengthen us, to give us boldness. Lord, I pray that if there's some in here today that, that have, have never accepted you as their Savior, that you use your word, not mine, but your word, to convict them that you open up their eyes and their ears, you melt their heart, and that you give them the strength and the power to accept you for who you are and to become their Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, I don't know what all the needs are today, but I do know that this room is filled with needs, and you are the only one who can answer them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you give me your words Give me your heart. Give me your passion. Help me to be a mouthpiece for you that stays true to your words. May all that we do, may all that we say, bring honor and glory to you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I think in this particular passage, there's a few things that we ought to highlight, pull out. Um, notice this. As Peter and John are released, as they're sent home, the first thing that they do, we saw in that very first verse that we read in verse 23, chapter 4, 23 of Acts, says this, and when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. First thing they do is they go and they find their friends. Who are their friends? It's that new formed church. It's their faith family. We live in a day and age where commitment is difficult. It's difficult for us to commit to something. It's difficult for us as, as groups to, to seek commitment, let alone gain commitment. Uh, the church is one of those things that, that can be um, funny at times. Like we know that that every Sunday it's there. They meet in the mornings. Some meet in the evenings too. And Wednesdays you have things and throughout the week there might be Bible studies or get together groups of whatever else. But, but, but for, for a great deal of society, a commitment to a church um, is based upon convenience. Uh, when I was young, this, I sound like my dad now. 
when I was a kid. I walked to school in the snow uphill both ways. I never figured that out. But, but when I was younger, like in the generation that I grew up with, um, commitment to church meant, you know, you were there all the time. When the doors were open, you were there. I mean, as kids, we probably didn't necessarily want to go there, but mom dragged us by the ears, right? And so you had Sunday school, you had Sunday morning. If there was Sunday night going on, if you had your Awana group or your RAs or GAs or whatever, I mean, you were there, you were part of it, you were there. And so if someone said, you know, if, if, if you went to church, boom, it was like you were either all in or you were not in. And then you had that one group that was just there Sundays on Easter and Christmas time, right? But, but today it's, it's, when we talk about commitment, it's a lot different. That, that a lot of times people equate commitment to, to showing up maybe once a month. You know, we see that even in a small church like ours. And listen, let me be very careful in saying this. Attendance isn't the only indicator of commitment, okay? Perfect attendance will not get you to heaven. And I understand that we live, that many of us have um, occupations and things that draw us away from time to time. But even in our own church, I, I, we have a family that I think has maybe been here one time this calendar year. And I was in public somewhere, and I was introduced as their pastor. Um, and they talked about how great our church was. That was nice. But like one time in a calendar, if it was the second week of January, it'd be one thing. I'm not trying to stand here in judgment. And I'm not saying this to say, listen, you know, I'm not guilting anybody. This is the Holy Spirit. You rest the Holy Spirit. You can take what I say and foo-foo it. But the church wasn't created just for the pastor's enjoyment. The church wasn't created for a guy to stand before a group and then later have coffee with another pastor and brag about how big his group is. It's not the purpose of the church. I think what we do, what we see here in, the very begin, in, this, in this passage of Acts is what we have, through God's grace, has allowed us to begin to build here at Redemption Hill. That when things get difficult, when times get tough, there's a family that these guys know that they can run to. Right? And that's part of why church is so important. It's not just the attendance, but if you're not connected, if you're not involved into the church, then when these difficult times arise, when there's a challenge, when you're facing uncertainty, when you're trying to raise a teenager, or when you're going through um, maybe a difficult season in your job, when you hit that rough patch in your marriage, when you get that news from the doctor that you did not want to hear? When you pick up a phone call and someone tells you that someone you love dearly has just passed away, where do you run? See, that's why I think it's so important for us. Like I, I make a very concentrated effort that I don't refer to you guys as a congregation. We aren't like high church and there's nothing necessarily wrong with high church. But what we work so hard to try and create is this idea of family, of faith family. So as these difficulties in life arrive, we have this place that we can come to, that we can huddle together, that we know that, that these aren't just strangers. That these aren't just random people that we see once a week. 
or on special occasions, but these are people who are family. And we see that, like, guys, I, I have the privilege of hearing this all the time where, where someone will talk about how great Redemption Hill Church is, and it's not about me, but it's about one of you reaching out to them, sending them a Facebook message, letting them know how welcome they were, or somebody bringing a casserole to eat, or somebody picking up the phone, the phone and calling them and, and seeing how their day was, or sending a note, bumping into them at Target and stopping and actually t- asking how their day was rather than just wave at them. Like, like we, we are, it blows my mind how amazing this faith family is that we've, we're so blessed to be a part of. And I think in many ways, that's exactly what the disciples had. That, that as soon as this bad news arrives, as soon as, as, they, as they're faced with this tough situation, the first group they run to, it's their church. Because they know they can huddle with them. They can talk with them. They can share with them in confidence. It's not just gossip. It's not just belly aching. But as soon as these words are received, I love what they instantly do. They go and they all gather and they pray. Verse 24 says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They prayed. It's one of those things that separates, I think, a Christian friendship and then just a friendship with those who aren't believers, right? I mean, there, there may be some genuine empathy and concern, but for those of us who are believers and you hear that news of somebody who's going through something difficult, like we can just, we can take that burden and not necessarily put it on our shoulders, but we can help them put it on God's shoulders, we can begin to pray with them right then and there. And then our friends know that not, it's not just a prayer there at like that moment, but for the foreseeable future, we know that that, that friend of ours, that faith family member of ours is, is walking that same walk with us, that, that they're praying for us. They're thinking about us. See, there's a different, a much different relationship. I, I don't think that the, the world can recreate Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned him a few weeks ago as an illustration. He was a man from Germany, a pastor, who was arrested during World War II and and sent to concentration camp. He was one of the very few pastors who spoke out against Hitler. And many during that time just chose to take the silent path, thinking that sooner or later this wacko would go away, not knowing the destruction that Hitler would bring. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, rather than just remain silent, began to speak out. The result of him speaking out was him being arrested and put in a concentration camp, ultimately killed in a concentration camp. But listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said this about about prayer. He says, A Christian community either lives by the intercessory prayers of its members for one another, or the community will be destroyed. I can no longer condemn or hate other Christians for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble they cause me. An intercessory prayer, the faith that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into the face of one for whom Christ died, the face of a pardoned sinner. That is a blessed discovery for the Christian who is beginning to offer intercessory prayer for others. 
As far as we are concerned, there is no dislike, no personal tension, no disunity or strife that cannot be overcome by prayer. Prayer is the purifying bath into which the individual and the community must enter every day. That's powerful. I love as, as these people began to pray, first, they start off with identifying who they're talking to. Sovereign Lord. Underline that beginning phrase. Verse 24, where the prayer begins, Sovereign Lord. Even though their life was um, somewhat in shambles, even though they stood before this group, they were being tried for, for, for something. There were these traps being set. Uh, their life was on the line for something that they believed in. Even though they had groups that were falling that they knew would, would be relentless, they began this prayer by saying, God, you're in control. You know. Like, you understand what has happened, what is happening, what will happen. You are sovereign. You are in control. From there, he, they, they, they make mention about how he was the one who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Maybe in the column of your Bible, you write down next to there, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Go back later today and, and read Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, where we're reminded of, of God and, and how he created everything. And if God can create everything, if he creates this masterpiece of a world that we live in, if he created our bodies, for those of us, if you just step back and just think how amazing the human body is with all these sensors and how we're able to, to get hurt and how often, many times, our body heals itself. The way our eyes blink, the way our, our, our minds work, it's amazing, isn't it? And to think that God created us. And if God can do all this, if, if God with a, with a swipe of his pinky can create the Grand Canyon, then God has whatever we're facing under control. Now, folks, that's not always easy, is it? When we're in the thick of it, when we're being faced with, with whatever the situation is, it's not always easy to swallow. Like for those of us who grew up in church, we've read the stories. We, we read about how, how Moses and the Israelites were leaving Egypt and, and God allowed that, but yet Pharaoh wouldn't let go and, and was, was chasing them down. And as they can see the dust of the chariots coming towards them and, and they're faced with water and nowhere to go, God parts the Red Sea. Like that's the same God. Like our God's so massively strong that if he wants to, he can part an ocean. But we forget that when we face our problems, don't we? We, we, we forget how amazing and how sovereign God is. I do. So often when, when, when I get to my prayer time, if it even gets that far, then I'm just going to God and I'm complaining about the situation that I'm in. And I'm talking about how difficult it is and how unfair it is and how I'm doing all this for you and the reward for, for my good works for you is this. This stinks. It's not fair. 
This is what I need you to do, God. In, in order for me to continue to serve you, in order for me to continue to follow you, I need you to fix this problem, fix this situation. Let my wife understand that I'm right and she's not. Figure out a way to put a zipper on my kids' mouths every once in a while. I need you to let my boss understand that I do work hard and I should be rewarded for my hard work. I think you know, we're, we're fortunate with, with Gavin here and, and we have a few people who are in law enforcement connected to our church. And I, we were kind of having a conversation with, with AD before. Like, guys, to me, it's heartbreaking to watch the news today. And, and to see all this terrible mess that's going on. And our, like, guys, like, you, you can't turn the news on for three seconds and not see something tragic and awful going on. And, and guys, I'll be honest with you, you could not pay me enough today to be a police officer because they're charged with the task of, of protecting us. But if they make one stumble, I mean, they're sacrificed. Like, that's hard. That's a hard line to walk, isn't it? And so as, as they're trying to help the community and protect the community, there's this witch hunt on them for any mistake they may make. Those are hard. But notice the disciples as they pray. Here in the, the quotations in verse 25 and 26, I, again, I, I, I love this. Peter, as he's praying, they go and they're quoting Scripture. He, he is quoting directly Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, a, a psalm that David wrote. And he, he references this idea back in these days when, when more than likely David's becoming the king. And, and he's mindful of all these nations that are rising up against them and how God just sits back and laughs in their feeble attempts, that God is in control and he knows that and he can just sit back and laugh at these feeble attempts of these people. And so they, they reference this, and, and, and while David's talking about these nations, they bring this back, and they point out to comparing these nations of Psalm 2 to Herod and Pontius Pilate, the, the leadership of their day, and how these guys, they're, they think they're in control. They think they have the ability to do all these things to us, but yet they're just a pawn in God's game. And here's what I think is so amazing in their prayers. In verse 29, it says this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You know, when you read this prayer, not one time, not one time in this prayer, the disciples say, listen, God, um, remove the persecution. Like, take it away from, from me. Or get rid of Herod and Pontius Pilate. Lord, fix this situation. Stop this. Help me. I, I need... The only thing they pray for is boldness to continue in the situation. That's a bold prayer, isn't it? Most of us, when we're in those difficult seasons, we want whatever we can do to get out. There is not one ounce within us who wants to remain in those difficult days, is there? We want to run and hide and get out as fast as we can. Yet the disciples, this new church, 
doesn't cry out for an exit plan. Doesn't cry out for judgment on on Herod and, and Pontius Pilate and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. No. What they do is they ask God to give them the power. Give them the boldness to continue in whatever God desires. We have, I have been trying to um, be very forthright with us as a church on our core values of who we are as a church and what, what, what makes us Redemption Hill Church. There's been one core value that I've focused on a lot as we've begun the book of Acts. And that's that we're passionate about prayer. We, we see this, we saw this as we went through the book of Daniel, right? Daniel was a man of prayer. We saw that time and time and time again. In this book of Acts, in just the first four chapters, we see that these people were, were people of prayer. Like th- they were going and they were talking to God. This, was, this wasn't just something that they did before a meal. This wasn't just something that they did right before they went to sleep. Like this is something that they focused in on. They were adamant about. Um, I, I love one of my favorite people in, in history, kind of in, in, in Christian and, and pastor history, is D.L. Moody. A guy that lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He, he made this. He says, he who, or said this, he who kneels the most stands the best. He who kneels the most stands the best. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, The wise man in the storm prays God not for safety from danger, but for deliverance from fear. So we've really tried to push this idea of prayer and make it much more than just a, a concept, make it much more than just a catchy phrase that we can put in the back of a bulletin and say this is who we are but try and create a, an element of, of this being true. Um, so uh, Gavin has a couple of these slides for me. This, this first slide, and I shared this, uh, we started a thing called the Upper Room. Uh, the, the last Sunday evening of each month, we, we come together and we, we, we do Lord's Supper, communion, and pray. The first, first night we did it, first month we did it, I think we had like six or seven of us. Last month, like last week, I guess it was. I think there were 17 or 18 of us, which is awesome. And it's not all about numbers, folks, but it, it's, it's a, it's a, to me, it's a really neat thing. And all it is is it's Lord's Supper and it's prayer. We pray for each other. It's, it's kind of like the same mentality of what, what um, we saw with these disciples here, that it's a group that we can run together and we can pray for each other, pray for the church and pray for our own individual needs, seasons of life or whatever. Here's what I want you guys to see. So this is a picture uh, in, in Jerusalem. And for those of you, it's pretty common. You can see the, the gold dome up here, right? Um, it's, a, it's a mosque. You see this big wall right here? Long, tall wall? It's called the Wailing Wall. And, and history tells us, and archaeologists believe, that this is one of the remains left of the temple. It's kind of the last remain of the temple. See this kind of a group of people that they're, they're kind of congregating here. So Gavin, go to the next slides, if you will. So what they do is, is people will go to this wall and they would pray. 
Okay, this, they, they pray. Now, the idea of wailing is they're, they're, they're crying out to God. They're giving these prayers, right? So go to the, the, the next, the final slide. If you get close enough to that wall, you see in these crevices all these pieces of paper that are stuffed in to this wall, okay? And what it is is, is these people, and, and for many people, it's a pilgrimage. They may, they may come once a year. For some, it may be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. What they do is they'll, they'll come, and on these pieces of paper, they'll, they'll write prayers out to God. And they take those papers, and they cram them into these crevices, into these rocks of the Wailing Wall. Well, last week, we, we kind of had it there, but, but if you look over here on the side of the church wall, we, we have our own prayer wall. Now, it's not the Wailing Wall. It's not from the temple, but it's a similar concept. In, in your seats there, there's a piece of paper and, and the idea, the thought process behind this is it's a chance for you that maybe there's God's laying something on your heart. You know, on a Sunday morning, it may be a decision that you need to make. Maybe the Lord's leading you that you need to stop doing this or start doing this. Maybe there's a situation in your family that you just, that you just need to pray about. As somebody that you know that's going through a hard time. Maybe it's a praise. Maybe it's, and you know, sometimes what happens often in prayer is it's not much more than a Christmas list. Like all it is, is it's a request. I need this, 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 and this, and please do this, this, and this, and this, rather than starting like the disciples did and saying, Sovereign God, you're good. So I don't, I don't know what it may be, but I want to encourage you guys that we begin to take action in this. Now, in the same breath, maybe you want, I'll probably be the only one that really reads those, and I'll share with some of those requests in the upper room, but maybe you don't want someone to know. Maybe it's a very personal request, and so you don't want people to know who it is, kind of like an unspoken type deal, then don't sign it. I'm not a forensic specialist. I'm not going to send it to Gavin and say, hey, can you fingerprint this for me? <laughs> don't sign your name to it. But maybe it's a request that you, you want me to pray for you by name. Then go ahead and sign it. Here's the deal. Even if I never look at that prayer wall, even if I never unroll those prayers, you know who knows those requests? You know who knows those challenges? God does. A sovereign God. And so I want to encourage you guys. Let's make prayer not just something we do before breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Not just a quick phrase that we start the day off with and a a quick thought that we end the day with. That we begin to devote ourselves to prayer. That That we do like the disciples do. That we make this a fabric of us of me, of you. That, that we commit ourselves to Christ first, but then to our faith family. That, that, we, that we don't make this just a casual thing that we're a part of. The deal is this, like your faith family needs you and you need your faith family. Life is too hard to go solo. I'm gonna pray for us and then the worship team is gonna come up here. And I asked them kind of last minute, to do a song. When we did our last upper room, we always end it by getting in a circle and holding hands and praying kumbaya style. And Grady came and a friend of his, and they had helped us sing a couple songs at the beginning. And and then we did a song called Set a Fire at the very end. Our youth, we sang it at youth camp two years ago. That song, Gavin, can you maybe put the lyrics up there for me real quick? 
Go, go to the, the next one. So this is, I guess, the chorus. Is that right? Is that the right phrase from a nine piece? It says this, so set a fire in my soul that I can't contain and I can't control. I want more of you, God. It's a simple song, and I think there's only like two slides. But that's a strong statement, isn't it? That's a, that's a bold thing to say. And I'm going to take this one step further. Like if that's not what you want, like if your desire is not that God sets a fire in your soul, if your desire is, is that, that, that you don't want more of God, then I wouldn't sing the song. But if it's something you genuinely desire in your life, whether you have a beautiful voice or a voice like mine that scares the shower waters away, then I would encourage you to sing it. Sing it as a prayer, a prayer of boldness, just like Peter and John and that 5,000, that early church prayed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all things you've done for us. Thank you for this opportunity for us to come together this morning. And God, as we conclude with this song, God, I do just ask that you um, help us to maybe just take a deep look at where we're at in our lives. Help us to figure out what truly is important, at least in our own eyes, and then direct us to what should be important. Lord, I pray that you give us the boldness that you gave Peter and John. And while I'm not desiring um, tragedy in anyone's life, I'm not desiring that anyone stays in a very difficult season of life. But I do want to follow the way Peter and John prayed. That no matter what circumstance we may be in, no matter what season of life, we ask, God, that you give us the boldness to endure it. We ask that you give us a fire within us that can't be contained or controlled and that our heart beat. We want more of you. We want more of you. So Holy Spirit, do your work. In your son's name we pray. Amen.